Hello, and thanks so much for tuning into the Digging Deeper podcast with Pastor Ken Vance. This podcast is designed to go a step beyond the Sunday teaching with a more in-depth look at the topic Pastor Ken shared with us this past weekend. So whether you're on your way home from work or pouring yourself a fresh cup of coffee, we hope you enjoy today's podcast. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode. And now, here's Digging Deeper with Pastor Ken Vance. Hey everybody, it's Pastor Ken, and welcome back to the weekly podcast, Digging Deeper with Pastor Ken. I'm the senior pastor of Vertical Church in West Haven, Connecticut, and these podcasts are designed to keep the conversation going on from Sunday morning, to dig deeper into God's truths, to help the people who are truly hungry to become established. And so I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share this, and I'm glad for all of you that are taking the time to tune in and listen. I really truly pray that these podcasts would be a blessing to you. Well, this month we've been talking about what I'm calling the promise of the presence. We've been talking about the heartbeat of praise and worship, which is near and dear to the heart of God. And in essence, what we're really unfolding and talking through is the restoration of the tabernacle of David. Now, to many Christians, that may be something that's new or they've never heard of before. You mentioned the idea of the restoration of the tabernacle of David, and immediately people think you're talking about the tabernacle of Moses. And the tabernacle of David was unique in that it was transitional. The tabernacle of David lasted maybe 40 years, but it is a picture, it is a window into something that the Old Testament revealed that would be a picture of what God would be doing in the new covenant. It's so critical to understand all of this because it was a foreshadowing of the church age. The time of David and what David instituted in these ends were so essential, so important, that when the church began, when the foundation of the New Testament church, the ecclesia that Jesus said he would build, the leaders originally were Jewish. And so as they began to progress, and Jesus had said to them that they were to take the message of the kingdom, they were to take the good news of what he had achieved and what he had done into all the world. They were to preach the gospel, the good news to every creature. Jesus told them before he went back to heaven, he said, you would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon you and you would be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. So what Jesus did was for the nations. But as this was all being worked out, there was much to be uh, um, established, much to be gone through. The Bible teaches us in the New Testament that the the renewing of our mind is entirely tied to the transformation of our lives. And that was just as essential for, the new, for these New Testament leaders to renew their minds from what God had done through the Old Testament to now what was incorporative in the New Covenant, the New Testament, what Jesus said on the night in which he was betrayed, what we call the night of the Last Supper. Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Then he took the cup after the supper and said, this is the New Covenant in my blood. Jesus instituted something new. And as all of this was being worked through, 
the tension and the controversy came about when Gentiles began to come into the kingdom. And so Acts 15, an entire chapter of the book of Acts, is dedicated to this huge meeting, this conference that came together with all of the leaders of the church world at that time to discuss what would the New Testament church look like. You had Paul and Barnabas who were there who were telling what God was doing among the Gentiles, how that there was great progress, that they were coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior um, just by the droves. But you had the Jewish leaders who were saying that the only way that they can be legitimate is that they need to learn to follow the laws that Moses had instituted. Because in the Jewish mind, they recognized that Moses had received this from God. And so it only made sense to them that true New Testament worship, true New Testament order would be in in accordance with what God had established in the law of Moses. But what they came to realize as they were discussing all of this, that this new covenant, this new thing that Jesus was doing was not like the old. And the one who finally weighed in and gave the decision to all of this was James, the half-brother of Jesus. James stood up and listened. He, He called attention to what God had done to Peter because Peter, being the chief apostle to the Jewish people, when he was called to go to the house of Cornelius, Cornelius was a Roman centurion, and he was a God-fearing man, and an angel of God had shown up to him and said to him that he was to send messengers, he was to send uh, people to bring back Peter, who was staying in the house of Simon the Tanner. Simon Peter would come and tell him words whereby he would be saved. But to prepare Peter for this, God gave him a vision. Peter went up on the rooftop, and as he was preparing, waiting for lunch to be uh, uh, fixed, he fell into a trance, the Bible tells us, and he saw a great vision of a sheet let down from heaven, having all manner of animals upon it, what the Old Testament would declare as clean and unclean animals. And the, the voice from heaven came to him and said, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. And Peter said, No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And the Lord said to him, do not call unclean what I have cleansed. And that happened three times until it finally dawned on Peter that God wasn't talking about animals. He was talking about people. What Jesus had accomplished for humanity is that he provided the opportunities for cleansing through faith in what he accomplished. That it was not about sacrifice. It was not about the institution of all that God had established through the Old Testament covenant that God had cut with the nation of Israel at Sinai, the law of Moses. In other words, something new had accomplished, something new had been done, that no longer were there necessary that sacrifices be made for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus' death was for all sin, past, present, and future, and that now there was a new establishment, a new way. And most importantly, what we're talking about in the context of this discussion is that now human beings were allowed into the presence of God. No longer was there a barrier because in the tabernacle of Moses and in the temple that Solomon had built, God's presence was kept in a place called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest was allowed to go in there once a year. But now when David had brought the Ark of the Covenant, And that's why in understanding 
the Tabernacle of David, it's important to have the historical background, to know that the, the sacrifice, all the systems that Moses had instituted were going on in Israel during the time of David, but without the Ark of the Covenant there. The Israelites had lost it in a battle to the Philistines, and when they recovered it, they sent it to a city called Kadeth Jerem, the city in the woods. And so the, all the sacrifices, all the ordinances that the law of Moses had instituted were going on, but yet absent from the Ark of the Covenant. And why is that important? Because the Ark of the Covenant, when you understand what Moses was instructed to build. It was the Ark of the Covenant that the presence of God resided upon. The, the, the top of it was called the mercy seat. And the Shekinah glory of God resided between the two cherubims that were on that mercy seat. And all of this is to say that the religious duty and ceremony was going on absent from the presence of God. And when David became king, David's heart was for God. He wanted God to be near him. He sought for it. He found that it was in the, the city in the woods in Kajef Jerem, and he gathered a posse together, and he brought the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem because David's first action as king was he had taken that Jebusite city, the city of Jerusalem, and he captured it and made it the capital of Israel. It was a neutral city that was not a part of the, any of the 12 tribes of Israel. He was brilliant in this because in unifying the nation, he caused a, 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 a place that was neutral. It was not a part already of the established cities of the 12 tribes of Israel. He brought a neutral one together and called it the capital of Israel. And there he brought the presence of God because he wanted God near him. David longed for and hungered to be next to God. That's why the Bible tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. And David is this foreshadowing of the New Testament because he was a royal priest. Jesus, what he accomplished for us as New Testament believers is that he washed us in his own blood and made us kings and priests unto God. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that we once, once were not a people, now we are the people of God. And then David instituted something, and that's why this series, what we're talking about, is about praise and worship, because David then instituted praise and worship in the presence of God continually. In the tabernacle of David, this tent that he pinched in Jerusalem, there were no barriers. Everyone had access to the presence of God. They'd came into the tent, and all that was in the tent was the Ark of the Covenant. There was no veil. There was no uh, a, a barrier before it that everyone had access to the presence of God. So now back to Acts 15. Jesus, half-brother James, who was now a leader, the, the head of the church in Jerusalem, he calls to attention to all of those there what God had shown Peter. And then he says, this is an alignment what the prophets had spoken. And then James quotes for what seems to be an obscure passage from the prophet Amos. He says, God had spoken this years ago. And he says, I will turn and rebuild 
the tabernacle of David, speaking of God. God had spoken this through the prophet Amos, and now James is calling attention and said, this is a fulfillment. This is what God told us he would do, that I will turn and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, so that all of the Gentiles that seek my face. See, in other words, God's presence he felt was what would bring people to know and understand who he was. Because of what Jesus had accomplished, now the veil being rent, that's so significant. The New Testament tells us that the day in which Jesus was sacrificed at Calvary, when he was nailed to the cross, Matthew's gospel tells us that the veil in the, te- in, in the, ta- in, in, excuse me, the temple in Jerusalem was torn apart from top to bottom. God signifying that he was no longer going to dwell in in man-made buildings, that now the New Testament gives us the realization that we, the people of God, are the temple of God. That we, when we come together, when we worship God, we are all living stones built up as a holy temple unto our God. That's why Paul the Apostle, in writing to the New Testament church, says, do you not know that you The whole church at Corinth, you are the temple of God. See, we're individual temples in that we're holders of the presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit coming in us. When the Spirit of the living God came to dwell in us, Jesus said that this was the promise of the Father, that we would hold the very presence of God in us. But there is an amplified a condition that when the people of God come together, that's what the, the New Testament church is. It's not a building. It's the people of God. It's the ecclesia. It's all of those who are called out of darkness. When we come together, there is a unified reality that we form and fashion God's temple and that God's presence, he desires to be there. And what should be going on there? Praise God and worship. There is this realization that when we come together to worship God as the church, that the presence of God is what we should experience. David was given instructions. In fact, in the history of the nation of Israel, praise and worship was not really a part of their normal practice. It was David that instituted this. And once he did, it became a part and parcel to what the nation of Israel did. In fact, when they built the temple of Solomon, what David had instituted in his tabernacle, they carried into the temple of Solomon. In other words, part of the Levites, part of these skilled musicians and singers came together and there was a service of worship that was continuous in the temple of God. But this had started in David's tabernacle because worship is near and dear to the heart of God. That's why when Jesus came along, the Bible tells us the story in in John's gospel, John chapter four, that Jesus intersected with a woman in Samaria at a city called Sychar. And he has a discussion with her and leads her to understand that he was bringing about something new. And he offered her living water. In other words, A relationship with God now would be something that was not dependent on where you were, but it was something he said would be in us, a wellspring springing up into everlasting life. And this led her to the very hunger of her heart. She wanted and asked him about the issue of worship. 
She was confused about it because there was a form of worship that the Samaritans were engaged in that happened on Mount Gerizim. But she said that the Jews say it was only supposed to be in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, woman, a day is coming and now is when you will neither worship God in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. For the Father seeketh such to worship him in spirit and in truth. God seeks worshipers, people who long for him, people who are desirous to know him. Because Jesus said eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And God has made his presence accessible to us in the New Testament because of what Jesus accomplished. Now, as priests, we all have the ability to go into the presence of the living God. We can go and worship and honor and, and, and adore God for who he is. And this is so important because it is there that people can experience the presence and power of God. And there's nothing more attractive to that because it's not by intellectual arguments that people come to know God. The Bible says, how can anybody come to know him unless the Spirit lead him? And it is the Spirit of the living God that reveals himself in that. When the people of God form that temple and God's presence is there, people recognize that the true and living God, see, God is a living God. People can experience his presence. And that's what we in the New Testament should understand. Worship is near and dear to the very heart of God. And we understand this if we think about just in culture as a whole, how important music is. Music, good music, reflects the feelings and desires that people sometimes have trouble putting words to. I know we just went past Valentine's Day, and guys a lot of times have trouble writing or expressing their feelings, and so they go and look for greeting cards. And those greeting cards are written in a way that they attempt to give that to their spouse to reflect their true feelings. And it's that way with music as well. When people listen to music, the music that they like generally connects them to something that's significant or important in their lives. And we understand the power of music and how that it influences our world as a whole. And so much the more when it comes to praise and worship, because the enemy has attempted to hijack this and use it to his own ends. But God is recovering all of that because true worship belongs to God and God alone. And music was created by God and for God. And there is something powerful about it. When the church comes together to worship, it should reflect the feelings and the emotions and the heartbeat of the, of the worshiper. What, is, what begins in the heart should then flow through the mouth, through their time of worship, that there is this connection between the worshiper and the one in whom he worships. And God is drawn to that. The Bible tells us that God inhabits the praises of his people. When there is true love, when there is true and genuine adoration, respect, honor that comes forth from us toward the living God, God is drawn to that. God wants relationship with his people and worship is near and dear to the heart of God. And so that's why in today, where I want to go to in our discussion is to recognize why all this is so critical, why we've been talking about all this, because David were, was given these instructions, and that's why these instructions kind of transcended from old to new, that it really wasn't a part of the old covenant. Therefore, 
it wasn't something that was changed as the result of the new covenant. David was given a picture, a window into heaven. And what he was given as instructions were things that came directly from God. And that's why they're eternal. That's why they don't change. And that's where we're going to go to today, because it's important for us to recognize. When Jesus came, when Jesus taught us to pray, listen to this. I grew up in a denominational church, and we used to call this prayer the Our Father. But listen to the beginning of this. When Jesus taught prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In other words, true prayer to God should begin with worship, should begin with a realization and recognition of who God is. That's so important because if you think about it, if we're just honest for a moment, a lot of times the way people pray is they rush into God or, you know, they rush to God with their problem and they talk all about their problem. And what's wrong with that is that when you talk only about the problem, your problem seems huge. And God at that moment seems very small, very distant. But you see, if we would take the opportunity to magnify God for who he truly is, God can't get any bigger than he is, but to us, we need to magnify the Lord. In other words, we've let our attention sometimes beyond the problems and circumstances of our lives. We need to get our attention off things that we're dealing with and get our attention and focus on the one who is great and mighty. And it's so true. That's why the New Testament tells us, set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. When you see God for who he is, as we've been talking through these ends, when we worship God for who he is, we're transformed into who we were meant to be. And when his presence is our treasure, it's then that our hearts become his throne. In other words, God is able to move and work in our lives when we recognize and acknowledge him for who he is. That's why worship truly is a voice of faith. It's the realization of who God is, what we believe, and our hearts pour out that realization from authenticity of understanding and recognizing and worshiping God for who he is. And it's powerful because God is drawn to that end. And when our hearts are overwhelmed with the goodness and who God is, our problems seem very small, very minuscule, because we know that God is mighty, that nothing is impossible with God, that if he spared not his own, uh, his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him? freely give us all things. So when we worship God for who he is, it begins to change our perceptions. And our perceptions create our realities. And the fact is, God is with us. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is so important to talk about today, because if we allow the circumstances of life to dictate whether or not we worship God, our enemy will control us all day long. But when we allow God, the reality of who he is, to dictate our worship, then we can worship God no matter what is going on. Because whatever we're going through, whatever situation we're facing right now is not the end. And the Bible tells us in Psalm 23, David wrote this. He said that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He goes on through all these ends. He said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? because you are with me. You see, God is always with us. And the problem too often in many people's lives is that 
He's, David said, though I walk through the valley, too many people camp out. Too many people remain there. When they're going through a difficulty, they begin to complain. They begin to become distressed. They begin, they begin to become despondent. They stop worshiping God because they're allowing the circumstances of life to dictate to them what they believe. Instead of allowing us to recognize, the New Testament teaches us that we walk by faith and not by sight. God is faithful. God is good. I may not know or understand all that he's doing right now, but I can trust that he has my best interest at heart and that when I put my trust and my faith in him, he is faithful. I have an entire book. I have an entire collection of all that has transpired for the people of God in days past that God has done on their behalf. When they were faithful, when they put their trust in God, God is trustworthy worthy. And that's why it's important for us to know and understand that God doesn't change. He's the same. And that if we stay faithful, if we remain expectant, if we hold on to the truth of who God is, if we worship God for who he is, it has the ability to transform our current circumstances and change them. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, my current circumstances do not dictate my destiny. I'm going to continue to worship God because God is faithful. God is mighty. And what you learn is that through those experiences in life, our faith grows stronger and stronger because strength comes through resistance. And when we don't allow the circumstances of life to control us, that when we worship God, because God is true, God is unchanging, God is awesome, He is amazing, and He loves us us. When I allow that to be my reality, when I allow that, my perception of the truth, Jesus said, when I embrace truth, truth makes me free. I'm free from the, from the constraints of all that tries to go on around me, controlling me. No, that's why when the Bible tells us that the transformation of our lives is tied to the renewing of our minds, he says, do not be conformed to this world. Why? Because the world is constantly trying to conform us. It's trying to mold us. It's trying to shape us. It's trying to tell us what we can and cannot do. It's trying to set the limitations. And God says, no, worship me for who I am because you are not limited. When you are my child, you know and understand. See, the world will try to tell you your economic background, your ethnic background, or all the other the things that the world tries to paint as limitations and barriers, God says, no, I'm not limited by any of those. And when this gets into your heart, that you are my beloved, that you are my child, when you will worship me for who I am, it will transform you into who you are meant to be. And there is a powerful reality to worship. That's why I love the Old Testament story in the book of uh, Chronicles, Chronicles, Second Chronicles 20, when um, Jehoshaphat was king over Judah and three nations attacked his tiny nation at that point because Israel had broken up into two specific nations, the northern kingdom, which had 10 tribes, which is the nation of Israel and the lower kingdom, which is the kingdom of Judah, which was made up of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And at this particular time, they'd been going through so much, but a godly man named Jehoshaphat was the leader of the nation. And he turned to God in that time of crisis. And a prophet, Jehaziel, spoke up in the midst of it because the king had called a fast and called the people to repentance and to seek the Lord their God for how they would handle this situation. And the prophet spoke up and said, this battle is not yours, but mine. Go out tomorrow and watch the salvation of your God. And then king 
not God. This is so awesome when you read the story. The king set the worshipers on the front row and said, let us go out tomorrow as the Lord has spoken to us. Believe his prophets and so will you prosper. Trust in the Lord our God. And so they went out singing and worshiping God for the Lord is good and his mercies endure forever. And when they went out worshiping God, God sent ambushes against those three nations. And by the time they showed up on the valley where all of those three armies had aligned themselves, they were totally and completely defeated. In fact, I love this because the Bible tells us that it took days for them to take all of the plunder away. See, God, when we're faithful to worship God for who he is, see, no matter what's going on in your life right now, you may be facing a medical condition, a physical infirmity, and the temptation may be, why, why, God, why is this happening? But God says, worship me. I am Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, your healer. Or maybe you didn't know that. Or maybe you're facing a financial crisis and things are just, it's robbing you of your peace. God says, listen, I am Jehovah Jireh. I am Jehovah Sh uh, 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 Shalom. In other words, I am the Lord, your peace. I am the Lord, your provider. When you worship God for who he is, it transforms the situations of our lives. And it's so important. This is near and dear to the heart of God. But when Jesus was teaching prayer, he saw that we should worship God first. Again, back in Matthew 6, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We should always begin with the realization of who God is. He said, Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now listen to this. On earth as it is in heaven. Why is worship so important? Why is it near and dear to the heart of God? Because listen to this. Worship is the place where heaven and earth become one. Worship is the place where heaven and earth become one. There are a couple of places in scripture where we are given a vision. We're given a picture of what's going on in heaven. One, when Isaiah was caught up, when Isaiah was a priest and he had gone in to do his priestly duties. He was caught up in a vision to the throne room of God. It's found in Isaiah 6. And Isaiah was overwhelmed because he saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. In other words, it represented all of the glories and majesties and victories and awesomeness of who God is. He was overwhelmed. He heard these, these creatures these seraphim that were around the throne of God, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, so loud that the very door frames of heaven shook. Now, what's significant and important, uh, I live in Connecticut, so we're not really in a prone area for tornadoes, but people who live in tornado-prone regions, there is uh, these warnings that come out, and when people hear a tornado warning, if they cannot get to a shelter, if they cannot get to the basement, or they can't get to a bathtub, the thing that they're told to look for is to get in the doorframe of a, of a building. Why? Because it's the most sturdy part of the construction. And here when it tells us that the doorframe shook, just the, just the, the, the passion, just the, the, the absolute a heartbeat of these to honor God for who he is is so 
immersed. And Isaiah was overwhelmed. And he said, Woe am I, a man of unclean lips, amongst the people of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord of hosts. And one of those seraphim went and got a, a coal off the altar and touched his lips and said, You are clean. It's a picture for us in the New Testament that because of the work of Jesus, not something we've done, but something he has done. See, what's so important to us, Titus 3.5 tells us, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. See, that's the difference from religion to true relationship with God. There's a realization that there's nothing that I did that warranted what God did for me. And when you're overwhelmed with who God is and what he's done on our behalf, then you can't help but worship him. See, religious people sometimes don't worship God because they think that they're deserving that they almost, that God owes them something because they have attempted to live a good life, that God owes them something. The truth is, from a scriptural point of view, God owes us nothing, for all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that everything is, that God has done for us, it is because of his mercy and his grace. And when we as New Testament believers are overwhelmed with that, the worship that we pour forth from our heart is what really tr- attracts God's love and devotion back towards us. I think of the story when Jesus was invited to the house of a Pharisee for dinner. And while he was sitting at the table, a woman came up to him. Now, all of the the religious leaders, all the Pharisees and scribes who were invited to this dinner were appalled at the fact that this woman who they knew was of, you know, a, a shady reputation whether she was a prostitute or had some other form of area, they looked at her as a sinner, but she came up behind Jesus at the meal and she began to weep and cry and wash his feet with her tears and then dry them with her hair. And then she took out an expensive perfume and poured it on his feet. And then Jesus realized in his audience that these guys were appalled by what was going on. They're thinking he can't be a man of God. He would not allow this woman to touch him. And it's so amazing how religion can be so different than the living God. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's the truth is that when he said, when he was, when they were appalled, when he went to the home of Matthew, the tax collector, Jesus said, go learn what I mean by this, that I desire mercy instead of sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sick. In other words, the people who think they're righteous, self-righteousness is appalling to God. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he said to Simon, who was the Pharisee that had invited him over for dinner, he said, Simon, he said, I have a parable for you. He said, two people owed a man money. One owed him $50,000 and the other owed him $50. And he, gave, he forgave both of them their debt. And then he said to him, which one will love him more? And the man, Simon spoke up and said, obviously the man who was forgiven of the $50,000. And Jesus said, you have rightfully said. He said, I've come to your house today. You didn't give me a kiss of greeting, which is customary of my time. You didn't give me any oil for my head, which is what hospitality Uh, uh, just the, the normal dictates of hospitality would ask of a host to bring. But yet this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. She, he said, you didn't offer me water to wash with, but she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She's poured expensive perfume on him. Her sins being many are forgiven and she loves much. 
You see, the more we recognize what God has done for us, worship is the response that comes from the human heart. It is the incense that burns from a heart of passion and love for a God that we recognize has done for us what we could never have done for ourselves. We are eternally grateful. We are eternally thankful to the God who saved us, who loved us, who made us his own, who made us heirs of his and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. When we're overwhelmed with the revelation of what the New Testament tells God has done for us, how can we help but worship God? And I'm not talking about constrained. I'm talking about worshiping God with full abandon because he is worthy to be praised. Jesus said that we should pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, because worship is the place where heaven and earth become one. You and I need to see this. In Revelation 4, the apostle John was given this vision, and in this vision, he saw heaven in these two places, Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. Let's take a look at it, because in Revelation 4, starting in verse 8, he said, each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under their wings. And notice this what it says. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. I, 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 I want to start here because listen to what it says. Day and night, they never stop saying. See, the people in heaven, the creatures in heaven, the, the, the different characters that are in heaven, that worship is their regular and normal activities and duties, just like it was in the tabernacle of David. David established there would be continual worship before the presence of God. It's because it's a picture of heaven on earth. And then he goes on to say, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Notice this, it says, and where I want you to, to pay special attention, last time we were talking, we highlighted seven Hebrew words. When David wrote the Psalms and those that were, that were contributors to these ends, remember I said that the Psalms predominantly were written during this period called the Tabernacle of David. They were inspired of the Spirit. In fact, I love when we looked at that last time that those musicians and those singers, that they prophesied on their instruments. They prophesied in that. In other words, they spoke under the inspiration of the Spirit. And what we have is the book of Psalms, which was Israel's songbook. It was their, their collection of worship that they ministered to the Lord in. It was created, it was, it was brought forth during this period in this essence. Jesus said we should worship in spirit and in truth, and it's important that we have the instructions of truth that David gave us, but it's also important to recognize that we're following the inspiration and leading of the Holy Spirit. When we gather together, the Holy Spirit is like the conductor of a great orchestra. We make a symphony of praise to God, and it's the, the Spirit that should inspire how we go about worship, because things that are in order, there should be order, there should be a, a, a sense of, of unity as the body of Christ worships God. But these seven Hebrew words, I'd like us to make special attention to because we see them 
depicted in the worship of heaven. That all of these words that David brought forth, the word yada, the word todah, the word barach, halal, tehillah, shabach, zamar, all of these things are represented when we see into heaven. So it says again that these elders that were around the throne, that they fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. That's Barak. They kneel, they bow, they worship the one who sits on the throne. And then listen to this. And they lay their crowns before the throne. Their crowns. Crowns represent the things that we as followers of Christ accomplish and achieve on the earth. Jesus made us both kings and priests. Kingships represents our vocation out in the world because every vocation that a believer follows is a calling from God. And we are intended to use the gifts and abilities that God places within us to go out and make a difference in our world. And that's a way that we honor and worship God. See, if you just define worship solely to the songs that you sing or what you do in church, you've missed it altogether. That way we live our lives is worship. The way we take the gifts and callings and abilities that God's placed within us and go out and use them in our world is a way in which we worship and honor God. We are to live for the glory of God. We were created by God and for God. And that's why when we come together, we take off our king robes. So whether we're a school teacher, whether we're a lawyer, whether we're a a, a lawmaker, whether we're a, a sanitation worker, whatever we do vocationally, when we come together as as believers, when we come together in the church, the ecclesia, we take off our royal robes and put on the the garments of a priest because we come to worship God. And when we come to worship God, it says they lay their crowns down. In other words, our successes, our achievements are a way that we bring before God and to acknowledge and recognize that we could do nothing without him. And that's one of the traps that people fall into, the seduction that occurs by success, that no one is a self-made man or woman. In other words, everything we do is the abilities that God has placed within us. And true worship is the humility that comes before the living God and acknowledges that nothing that I do, nothing that I have is absent from your ability, what you have given me the ability to do. And that's why we should come with a sense of worship. We lay our crowns down before him. All of our achievements, all of our success is entirely tied to who God is and what God has done in and through our lives. And it's represented here in this, that they lay their crowns before him and worship him. And they say, you are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they were created and have their being. We were created for the pleasure of God. When we go out and do what we were created to do, God is glorified when we acknowledge him, when we give the honor and glory of our success to the living God, that is how we worship him. That is how we acknowledge who he is and how he created us. We did not create ourselves. We were made by him and for him. I love the old story. There was a movie that came out years ago called Chariots of Fire. And it told the story of the English team that had gone to the Olympics. But one of the portraits that it spoke about, there was a man named Eric Little because the movie was based on a true story. Eric Little, his parents were missionaries in China, but they were Scottish of origin. And so they sent their son back to do boarding school in England while they were in the mission field in 
um, China. And so Eric discovered during his time of schooling that he was fast, that he was a great runner. And so he, this, this is a line from the movie. He said this. He said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. You see, when we're doing what we were created to do, we honor and glorify God. And that's what they do here is the acknowledgement that everything we are, everything we do is for you. We honor and glorify your name. And that's why coming in and singing songs of worship should be from the heartbeat and the understanding of all that we've achieved and done during the week, all of our successes, all of our victories, all of the things that we're dealing with, even our challenges. We bring before the Lord our maker and recognize that you are great. If I'm in the midst of a challenge season right now, I trust that you will bring me through. And if I have had success, I come and lay it at your feet and say, you are worthy of my honor and worship because nothing that I have is apart from you. I was created by you and for you. And then look at verse in, in, in Revelation 5. John was given a further vision. And he said, I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, which encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. Now listen to this, in a loud voice. People have this, this problem. They say, why does it have to be so loud in church? People are like, no, sh 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 be reverent. They think that somehow it honors God to be quiet. Well, <laughs> they've actually never seen what heaven is like. And all those people that are nervous, that are upset when things get loud or more boisterous in church, my question to them is, where are they heading? Is heaven where they want to call home? Is heaven where they want to be? Man, church is a place you begin to get used to all this because worship is the place that heaven and earth become one. That in heaven, they said, it says here again, in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, notice this, worship is an all skate. It means that it's a participatory reality. Worship isn't something that, we're go that we go to and are entertained by. See, we live in a culture where so often we are consumers, but God says, no, in Christ, you are a contributor. You have been given the ability to be a part of all this. That's why at Vertical Church, we call a win for us particip participation. It's when the congregation ignites. It's when the congregation joins in. It's when the congregation experiences God for themselves. Because although the excellence of the music comes off the altar, we believe that just facilitates that end. But it's not there to entertain people. It's there to facilitate the opportunity for the worshipers to join together and worship God. Because here again, it says that every creature in heaven and on earth, this is the design and will of the Almighty, that we would all come together, be united in this, because when we worship God, God is glorified. Here's an important truth. Jesus said this when praying. In John 17, Jesus said, Father, the glory that you gave me, I give them, that they may be one as we, Father, are one. In other words, when we come to worship God together and God's glory is manifested, Jesus said that's the real truth of how we bring unity 
into the body of Christ. That's how we can be different from different backgrounds, different cultures, different, different orientations of life. All of us can come together when we recognize what Jesus has done for us because the focus of worship in heaven is upon the Lamb. It's upon what Jesus accomplished for human beings because we would not be there apart from him because we were all sinners. We were all had fallen short of the glory of God, but Christ redeemed us freely by his grace. Because of Jesus, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but through him. And it's through him in the shedding of his blood that washed us from our sins and made us acceptable unto God so that we could become the priest, the royal priest that God originally had in mind when he created humankind, that we would rule the earth in the love and power of the, of the Lord God of Almighty. And it said all of these in a loud voice were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Again, notice here and here you have Tehillah, you have the songs of Halal, the, the, the spontaneous praise, this, this, this eruption of joy and, and, and honor to the living God. Yada, their hands raised. Barak, those that are, that are bowing in honor and praise to God. Zamar, the, the, the singing and playing of music. Shabbat, those that are shouting in a loud voice. All of this is in truth what it's like in heaven. And God wants us, this, according to Jesus, he taught us to pray that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what is heaven-centered worship? Number one, it's worship in heaven is Christ-centered. The attention is drawn to Jesus and what he did. In other words, worship is not about us. And that's the confusion that comes in today's times. We have our preferences. We have our likes. We have what we want. And we forget that it's not about us. It's all about him. It's about Jesus. It's about what Jesus accomplished. Worship is to an audience of one. And here's where something we can get mixed up on. Because when we worship God, we can experience his presence. And that's awesome. And that's good. But that's a, a cause and effect situation. We don't go into worship so we can have an experience. We go into worship because God is worthy of our worship. And when we have an experience, it's just the outcropping of something that happens as the result of it. Sometimes we get mixed up. It's like putting the caboose before the engine. It's really wrong because why? Here's what we struggle with in our time. We live in a very meistic culture. Today's times, so many people, it's all about me. We live in a society we want others to do for us. And we are... Think about it in this way. I call it the selfie generation. We live in a time where everybody is self-obsessed, self-absorbed. You go onto people's Facebook, you go onto people's Instagram accounts, and what you find is so many pictures of ourselves, and it's about our experience. It's about what's going on in our world, what we're eating, where we're going, how we're having vacation. It's all about me. And God says, no, it's not about us. It's all about him. 
Our focus is him, who he is, what he's accomplished, what he's done. That's why we can worship God no matter what's going on in our lives, because it's not about my current circumstance or situation. God is worthy. That's why I can todah, I can lift up my hands even sacrificially to the honor and glory of who he is. It's important to recognize because when God is our focus, we are drawn to him, but the enemy has attempt because Satan knows how important worship is. In fact, side note, different conversation for another day. Satan used to lead worship in heaven. He knows the power. He knows the glory. That's why he, he, he attempted to, uh, a, you know, a, a take over this hijack it for his own use. He knows the power of music. He knows how it can, ex how people can be affected by it. Think about music has the ability to affect even the mood of people. They use it in, in movies. You ever turn down the, 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 if you're watching a movie, turn down the sound, turn down the music. And it has an entirely different effect. Music affects the heart. It affects the mood. It affects the soul of human beings. And when it is inspired by the spirit, when it is godly, it brings us into the presence of the Lord God Almighty. It is the incense that burns from our hearts, the honor and glory and worship of the one true and living God. And that's why the enemy has tried to subtly get the attention to be on us. In fact, there's been a trend in modern worship that the songs are more about us and what God has done for us. And we've become the focus of so many of our songs, but no, we've been mis, mis, you know, guided in this regard. Jesus is King. I come to honor him. I come to extol him. I come to worship him for who he is because he alone is worthy. That's why worship is about exalting God. I exalt thee because you alone are the one who is mighty to save. See, God is awesome. God is, 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 is so powerful. And when we worship him in spirit and in truth, God seeks that. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro across the whole face of the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully devoted to him so that he can show himself strong on their behalf. And that's why it is in worship, or, or excuse me, in worship in heaven is also number two, reverent. But reverent doesn't mean solemn. Reverent means honorance. It's respecting the one who we're worshiping. It's honoring him for who he is, not who we want him to be. That's where we kneel. That's when we bow. That's when we lift our hands. There's a point that we recognize. God's not my bud. He's not my homeboy. No, God is high and holy. God is awesome, but he's also my father who loves me. And I can worship him. There's a sign of respect. There's a sign of honor. There's an idea that in God's house, it's not, you know, people get freaked out about that. They say, you know, in God's house, oh, don't let kids run or don't let kids. Run. Jesus had no problem. You see, the Pharisees tried to shut down the kids when they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They're like, keep those kids quiet. Don't you hear what they're saying? Jesus said, if I keep them quiet, the rocks will cry out. No, in God's house, there's a place of joy. There's a place of, of honor. There's a place of recognition that God is our father and he has invited us. We have a family reunion. There's a reverence to these ends, but there is also a point where it's not man-made. Again, the seven words that define what praise is to God 
is so important to follow because we come up with our own ideas. Man has come up with ideas about what it means to worship God, but none of these things do we see in heaven. You notice there's not banners and people with flags. There's not people with tights that are doing dances and interpretive stuff. No, and I don't want to do disparagement to any on that front, but when we see heaven, it's an all skate. It's not something we're entertained by. It is something we participate in. And God is the focus. So we're not focused on any other thing but the Almighty because it is reverent. Number three, it's joyful. It's celebratory. See, when you know what God has done, you know who God is and who he is to you. You can't help but be joyous. And the Bible tells us that in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. But joy is a choice. You can allow the circumstances of your life to control you, or you can allow your faith to be what inspires your worship. You see, it's easy to worship God when things are going well in life. But true worship is not when it's based on the circumstances around you. True worship comes from the heart and what we believe about God. And God is true. God is faithful. God doesn't change. Therefore, we can worship God no matter what's going on. And you see, if the enemy can control you by the circumstances of your life, he knows this. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. There is a point when we come joyously to worship and celebrate God for who he is, despite what's going on in our lives, that there's a spiritual strength, there's a renewing, there's a re-understanding of who God is and what he's doing, and there's an anticipation and an expectation that we gain in our hearts to trust the living God, that he is faithful, that he is he will do what he said he will do, because he is who he said he is, and I worship him for who he is. That is powerful. And there is a joy that comes about from that. See, the work of joy is an inspiration. It's a work of the spirit. The Bible tells us the fruit of the spirit is love, joy. You see, when we allow the spirit to be the one that motivates us and guides us and leads us in these fronts, there is a joy that comes when we worship God and it strengthens us. It encourages us. It, it helps us. Our faith grows stronger and, and our worship becomes the voice of our faith. But joy, some of us, you just need to learn to turn that frown upside down. You need to learn to, to get alone and to worship God and realize no matter what's going on in my life right now, God is worthy to be worshiped. I don't worship God maybe for what's going on, but I worship God in the midst of it because I don't believe that where I am today ultimately is my destiny and I'm passing through. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not camping out. I'm not staying here. I'm passing by. I'm going through. I'm looking ahead because my God is faithful and I will worship God in the midst of the situation for he is bringing me out. And when you begin to recognize who God is and what God's doing on your behalf, when your faith becomes strong and your worship becomes passionate, that shout will bring you out because guess what? God is worthy. God is mighty. And the Bible tells us, I love this, one of the Psalms tells us specifically that worship we, we execute a sharp two-edged sword that we bind in fetters our enemy when we worship the living God. That's why the Bible tells us it's an all skate. Psalm 150 says, instruments, praise, all the rest of the, and then everything that has breath, let us praise God. And lastly, but not least, worship in heaven is loud. 
In other words, we shouldn't get nervous. They in heaven shouted with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. You see, God says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. We should not be nervous about that. We should be able to come together and say, you know what? Silence isn't the will of God. There are times when it's good to be quiet because God is trying to speak to us. And there are other times that we just need to let it out. We just need to let let our heart connect with our faith and say, no, I'm going to shout his praises. I'm going to glorify the God of heaven because we know that when when we cheer on other things that we find beauty in, when we see things that are amazing to us, you know, I always go back to the sports analogy because people, they get excited and they cheer their team on. They celebrate. They're joyous. They, 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 They throw up their hands. They cheer their team on. Well, how much greater does the God of heaven deserve our loyalties and our... The word fan comes the word fanatic. How much should we be fanatics who reverence and honor and respect the God who loves us, the God who saved us, the God who is with us, the God who is for us, the God who has provided us richly in all things, the God who has filled us with his spirit, and we have power to be witnesses of him. How much more should the God of heaven be the one that inspires our worship, inspires our praise, and the one that draws us together and unifies us? We shouldn't be nervous. We should not be ashamed to let out our love, devotion, and faithfulness to the one that we so honor and worship. So I hope this helps to you. This has been a great series for me because the restoration of the tabernacle of David is truly what God has been working through in these last years. And I believe that the presence of God is being able to affect so many more areas than we've ever believed before. God is breaching things that we thought that were one time unbreachable. But now, because of the excellence of what he's raised up and those that are unashamedly worshiping God, God is breaching those areas and people are experiencing the presence of God who at one time never thought they would. And that's why it's important that we, the people of God, come together and recognize that worship is joyous. Worship is celebratory. Worship can be loud. Worship can be fervent. But worship should express our love and devotion to the one who alone is worthy to be praised. The object of our affection, the joy of our heart, the one we love more than any. And we should not be ashamed to show that. So when we come, I pray that our times together get more and more glorious, that we go from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. When the veils remove, when we see God for who He is, we're transformed into who we were meant to be. So I pray that truly God's presence will be your treasure so that your heart will be His throne, that you will allow the instructions of worship to lead you to the heart of God, because when we worship, that's the place where heaven and earth become one. This is Pastor Ken, signing off till next time. 